and one of the first things he said is, um, you know, your book is on my shelf, <laughs> which I thought was wonderful because, you know, he obviously hadn't read it, but he didn't want me to think he had forgotten about it or something, and he was too honest to say anything else, but it was just very sweet. Life is a very rich thing, and for anybody that uh, is just involved in UFOs, God help you, you will go insane, you, you will lose your mind. It's very important to be able to bounce off your own walls and, you know, have a good time and have fun. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Before we kick off the episode, let's plug our good buddy here, Pete Diggins, for providing the theme music for this installment of the program. You can find out more from Pete Diggins at www.orophonic.com, A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C.com. Check it out. I've gotten a ton of submissions from folks out there who want to have their music featured on the program, and now that we have taken care of a lot of the in-house stuff, I will be able to give a closer listen to their music. But if you want to send something in the interim, shoot me a line at boaaudio at hotmail.com, and I'd be happy to tune in to your tunes. I kind of alluded to it there, but let's make it official and short and sweet, the big Audio migration over to Cyber Ears is complete. Our iTunes feed is fixed. The MP3 and streaming audio links at BOA are fully functional once again. So hopefully all the folks who lost us over the last few months are picking us back up again and catching up on all the episodes they may have missed the last few weeks. Welcome back, my friends. The show continues onward. Speaking of which, let's get down to business on this week's installment of BOA Audio. Our guest this week is my good friend and one of Ufology's great thinkers, the amazing Peter Robbins. He's been on the program numerous times, and since I've known Peter for quite a while, he was really one of the guys who inspired me to keep going and digging into the paranormal I pretty much went into this throwing the questions out the window and setting aside some time to talk to Peter and just seeing where the conversation went. As such, it's a little tough to really pinpoint the areas that we talk about, but I'm going to do my best here. We're going to touch on Rendlesham, of course, and the big Rendlesham 30th anniversary that happened back in December of 2010. We'll get into the malaise of ufology that has become a running theme here on the program over the last few months. Peter's going to weigh in on that and how he combats the fatigue of trying to study this enigma. We'll talk about 2012, the mainstream media and how they portray ETs and UFOs and just the problems with the mainstream media in general. UFO skeptics, the alleged rapture event of May 21st, 2011, and what it says about society as a whole. We'll get reflective on a number of issues, get really meta in talking about what it's like being UFO researchers and how that changes your perspective on the world at large, and a whole bunch of big-picture issues like what might be behind the UFO phenomenon and how difficult it is to really wrap your arms around that mystery 
Altogether, really, it is a fast and loose conversation with someone I consider a very good friend in not just the world of the paranormal, but life in general. And as such, really, it is a fly-by-the-seat-of-our-pants conversation that just goes wherever it wants to go. And I think folks are really going to dig it. The incomparable Peter Robbins joins us here for a jam session covering the world of UFOs and so much more. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Peter Robbins, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Peter Robbins has been involved in UFO studies for more than 25 years. As a researcher, investigator, writer, lecturer, activist, and author, he is a board member of Bud Hopkins Intruders Foundation and is co-author of the British bestseller Left at Eastgate, a first-hand account of the Bentwaters Woodbridge UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation. Robbins has extensively lectured both in the United States and abroad, including dozens of talks throughout the United Kingdom. Venues have included local, national, and international conferences, as well as presentations for organizations, seminars, private groups, public, private, and secondary schools, universities, libraries, and scientific organizations, educational foundations, and Cambridge Hospital in Boston, under the sponsorship of the late Pulitzer Prize winner, Dr. John Mack. Peter has also served as art director and investigator for the New York City-based Scientific Bureau of Investigation, SBI, a national police and civilian UFO research organization, and as editorial assistant on the requested Blue Memorandum for Parliament's House of Lords debate on UFOs in January of 1980, and served as research assistant on the United Nations Secretary General's report for the establishment of a UN UFO department. Unfortunately, Peter does not have a website that we can plug here, but he is on Facebook, so head on over to Facebook, punch in Peter Robbins, so you can befriend him or get in touch with him or follow his work. With all that said, let's kick back, relax, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June 1st, 2011. Peter Robbins joins us for a ufological jam session on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. And last year when I brought our guest back on the program in January of 2010, I, it was about five years since his previous appearance, and I promised him it wouldn't be another five years since he came back on the show. He's one of my very good friends. He's one of ufology's truly great thinkers and someone I enjoy talking to and really pondering this this mystery with. And he's overall really a genuinely great guy, one of the most well-thought-of people in the world of ufology. Everybody seems to love this guy and, and has just amazingly kind words to say about him. I spent an enormous amount of time with him in person, hanging out in a variety of different venues, and, and you know, I can't put him over enough. I consider him a great friend, a mentor, someone who I turn to for advice, not just on matters <laughs> UFO-related, but also life in general. Of course, he's the co-author of Left at East Gate with Larry Warren, and, uh, you know, I could go on and on with the platitudes, but I want to actually start talking to him now. So welcome back to the show, Peter Robbins. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Hi, Tim. And, uh, yeah, the reason I'm so well-liked is I, I pay people um, <laughs> to like me, and it works out. <laughs> it is good to be back. It feels like it's only been four years. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well you know uh we last chatted towards uh i think the middle of the summer last summer just for a little pop yeah. in but we had you on at length uh last january uh yeah. so what have you been up to you know in the last oh, 18 months or so 
well, um, last year, um, major focus was the big events in Roswell. They always have uh, four days uh, in the beginning of July to coincide with the anniversary of the famous events of 1947. And for the past uh, three or four years, I've worked for the city as a consultant and a coordinator of their uh, symposium and um, then moved on to, uh, you know, some other small speaking dates. Uh, I picked up a column in the United Kingdom, and as of this past issue of UFO Matrix, um, they've been in business for a year, which is a great watermark, yeah. I think, along with um, Open Minds. They're really the two best English-language magazines right now on the subject. And uh, the column is called On Assignment. It's a bi-monthly, and um, I believe it's now available in um, Barnes & Noble stores around the country. Nice, nice. Yeah. Otherwise, um, this past December and into January brought me back to Suffolk, England, mm -hmm. because um, late December, between Christmas and New Year's, was the actual 30th anniversary of the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. And um, there was a small conference that took place on the exact 30th anniversary of the Third Nights events, the ones that my co-author Larry Warren was involved in. And it was uh, an extremely uh, memorable, quite emotional, uh, very uh, unique conference. And... Um, this year, it's a lot of writing, but um, in March, there was a conference in Lawrence, Kansas, that may stand as a one-of-a-kind conference. Mm -hmm. It was organized by two guys there who put up their own money and brought in 13 or 14 and some of the best-known names in UFO studies, and it was billed as the Reykjavik UFO Summit. Okay, yeah, and, the name yeah, the name does ring a bell, yeah. Yeah, and although um, you know, the attendance wasn't huge, there was about 600 people in and out over the weekend, and it was great seeing uh, a number of those folks again and um now of course, uh, you know, gearing up a bit long range for the um upcoming Exeter conference in September that we've been a part of the last few years, and that will be September 3rd, which is a Saturday. And although it's still coming together, we know that the um, the main presenter is going to be Kathy Martin. And for anyone who, of course, follows this subject who has never heard Kathleen Martin speak, she is really a force in nature as far as I'm concerned. She's one of the greatest assets we have in that, you know, she seems fairly quiet and sedate. And she's a nice grandmother with a background in social work and education. But she also happens to be Betty and Barney Hill's niece and uh, arguably was the closest person to Betty for the whole latter part of her life relative to this subject. And her presentations are extraordinary. And as many of our listeners know, this September, coordinated literally just a few short weeks away from the actual Exeter conference, it will be the 50th anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. So um, that is one not to miss. And uh, we understand, you and I, that there may be some other uh, surprises, really big names involved. Mm -hmm. uh, the program is not locked down yet, but um, 
I, I think that this will be the third annual one, and I, I think that they're building something really important there. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be quite a good time. So folks should definitely check that out. Um, what, one of the things you just said that really piqued my interest here was you, you're saying you were at Bentwaters for the 30th anniversary and you had the mm. conference there, and you said it was emotional. You know, where where's that coming from? Yeah, it's not a term we usually use yeah. for you know UFO studies or a conference, but. This was one of a kind. Um, anybody that's followed this extraordinarily important uh, UFO incident, uh, far and away the best known and best documented UFO incident in the history of the United Kingdom, certainly knows my co-author's name, Larry Warren. Larry was, uh, at the time, an Airman First Class with a secret security clearance uh, and a member of the uh, United States Air Force Security Police. And was involved as an eyewitness in the third night's events. But um, other names have now, uh, over the past years, started to um, you know, come into the public mindset, two of which are uh, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston, who were involved earlier on. And uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Linda Howe, although she's best known for her animal mutilations, work, crop circle, and other things, uh, she has done some terrific research on this case and for the last few years has been working uh, in great part with Jim, uh, with John Burroughs and more recently with Jim Penniston as well, although I, I don't know if they still are. Uh, she even did a very extensive interview with Larry Warren the year before we started working together, 1986, which is posted in several parts on her oh, wow. Earth Files website. But um, she and I and Jim and John were the speakers at this conference. And it was held in uh, Woodbridge, Suffolk. Woodbridge is the nearest town, maybe a, less than a dozen miles from the sites of the events. And um, Larry was there basically to just say hi. Uh, he uh, very generously um, deferred um, when we were asked to uh, speak um, and said, you know, people in the UK who uh, follow this are overall fairly familiar with my account because of our book and a lot of time on television, and many of them are not familiar with Jim and John's account, and I thought it took uh, a lot of class. Uh, but he basically, um, we basically bowed out um, as, as uh, keynotes, uh, Larry in particular, and Jim and John uh, kind of dominated the night. And Jim and John were involved on the first night, and both of them, um, even more than Larry, I realize now, the disturbances that they are still living with, the post-traumatic stress, um, in some cases, the knowledge that memories from that event that um, John in particular but certainly Jim as well, are not sure um, about which memories are absolutely real or were implanted by American intelligence, not, you know, these other intelligences. Yeah. Um, and the audience, we kept resetting the chairs that after, well, the day before to maximize the uh, community center. And every time we did, I'd take account and, you know, measure and just pushing the fire eggs to the max. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. Got about 380 chairs in there, but we did have over 400 people. And the thing about it, Tim, was I'd say a good solid three quarters of them were local. And this was the, not a, the story they grew up with. Some of them were kids at the time, other ones uh, now, you know, uh, certainly seniors. 
there was quite a handful of local witnesses of retired British military, um, of, of uh, English witnesses overall. And the other quarter of the audience came in from all over the place. But these people knew every, most of them knew every aspect of the story as well as it had been published. And they were angry. They were still angry at the British for lying about it. They were certainly still angry at the Americans for covering it up. And they were angry that they weren't getting some of the straight answers that they would have really preferred. In fact, I'm not saying any punches were thrown, but it's the first UFO conference I ever spoke at where a bunch of fights broke out in the audience. Like and it was basically, you know, a speaker would say something, and somebody would yell something like, no, that's blah, blah, and the other person would correct them, and then they'd get into a thing. <laughs> uh, so it, was, it wasn't, you know, a soccer match, but they were emotional. And Jim and John were emotional. Um, Jim told me at one point that that night, uh, the first night when he and John were out there in the forest and, you know, there was this machine that he made the famous notes on, uh, copied out the markings on it, touched it. It was the worst night of his life. Um, all of these guys have burned through marriages, have health problems. Jim and John, and I'm talking out of school here, um, they are both seeing therapists. They have both been, I think, very uh, forthcoming in allowing um, parts of video of their sessions, their hypnotic regression sessions with their therapists to be used um, in coordination with some of the talks that they've done with Linda. And it was very moving and alternately frustrating, um, enraging that these guys were put through this, fascinating. And I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. At one point, um, John Burroughs was on stage. You know, he's a tall guy. He's got to be like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. Yeah. But he just looks kind of haunted, and he's the first one to say, you know, he's just never been the same since this. Question. John, is it true that when you came upon the machine in the woods, you drew your service weapon on it, went into a two-handed stance, and then reholstered it? John, I may have. I'm not sure. I don't know if it was a real memory or not. John, is it true, as I've heard, that you impulsively threw yourself on the thing? And it took off and went like 30 feet with you on it. I I may have, but I may not have. I don't know whether it's a real memory or one they put in my head. John, were you abducted? I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, it was intense. And with the exception of a break, you know, I started it out with uh, an under an hour presentation. Linda got up there, did her usually professional thing. Then Jim and John got up there and... Uh, then Nick came up, and we took a lot of questions. And after more than five hours, uh, you know, we were emotionally tired. We were tired, tired. They were working on a documentary at the same time. Um, Jim or John said, we know you're all pretty beat. It's, you know, like 20 after 11 now. And this is a ferociously rough winter in England. Uh, said, we know that we put on the website that if any of you were interested after the conference, we would take you out to Eastgate, the Eastgate of Woodbridge, where we were when it all happened, and try to recreate it for you. But we realize it's late, etc. Uh, anybody still interested in going? And about half the hands in the room went up. <laughs> again, like close to 11.30. And I'd say about 40 minutes later, at least 150 people were pulling themselves together at the pre-appointed place in the forest, all of us who came 
were prepared, you know, two pairs of socks, flashlights, all that stuff. And we walked a half mile or so up Eastgate Road with John and Jim and the uh, Larry, other people, Brenda Butler, a famous local researcher, a whole bunch of folks, uh, right back to where it all started. Uh, and a film team from, uh, I think, the History of Discovery Channel. I forget which one's working on this thing. And they spent half hour, 40 minutes or so, recreating it for us. And it was intense. I mean, I've been out there more times than I can think uh, over the past 23 years. At night, during the day, in the winter, the summer. But not like that. And uh, so, yeah, it was a heck of a conference. And for any of us that felt... I mean, forget about the word closure, but that it might, you know, sew up some loose ends and things. We all left there just more fascinated, frustrated, curious, tired, uh, you know, (laughs) pissed off than we were before. In this case, as Larry once said, you know, this one's never going to go away. Yeah. And um, I'm actually going to be heading back uh, to Suffolk in a couple of months for another conference, but... um, I don't think I'll ever be able to let this one go for the rest of my life. It is just part of my DNA right now. And, uh, you know, spend that much time focusing in on one event and its ramifications on the lives of human beings. And, you know, that's the way it goes. Yeah, well, it's an interesting case, too, because it's, you know, they call it the British Roswell, but it happened so recently that we can really see the fallout much Well, you're right, Tim. And and again, the um, the name the British Roswell is is a good enough term based on the fact that it's as famous there as Roswell is here. Uh, not that Roswell isn't famous there as well, but that's about where it stops. And you're right. Not only um, is it more contemporary, but you know the last of the old guard of the anybody associated with the Roswell events are coming into the home stretch, where literally everybody that was involved in this incident, I'm sure with the small number of exceptions is alive, hopefully well, and if our elected officials ever had the uh, courage to look into this again in congressional investigation, you know, that ain't going to happen with this group of jerks, um, (laughs) this would be the case. This would be the one that could bust it open. Uh, All the more reason that they're not going to want to even take a look at it, but uh, it is fascinating. It continues to be the subject of... um, declassified material, although the big story relative to it in March was uh, a BBC story from, I think, March 3rd, saying that Her Majesty's government had declassified and posted, I don't know, another eight or 10,000 pages yeah. of mid-level UFO documents on Ministry of Defense website. But the big story was that all of the documents relating to Rendlesham were missing. And the next day, on March 4th, the New York Times, true to form, published an article where they tried to mock it. It was a little difficult, but they took some shots at it and, you know, used the silly kind of terminology that they do. Had a very interesting photograph that they even uh, had uh, there. Um, but the big story for me, I mean, talk about contempt for the truth, was that they never even mentioned that several, you know, possibly thousand pages, but certainly several hundred. We're not given a number. We were just told a substantial amount of data all on Rendlesham was missing, and they didn't even refer to it in passing. Uh, And, you know, to add insult to injury, 
they always have to bring in Roswell. And, you know, of course, in Britain, this thing is uh, thought of uh, as a big deal, but uh, much like in America, where some people claim that a UFO landed uh, in uh, New Mexico in 1947. And, you know, with all of the wacky distortions about the Roswell incident, I've never heard anybody even, you know, refer to that possibility. It's yeah. always a crash. Yeah, exactly. So it's just one more way to thumb your nose at, you know, um, even in their case, at the myth, legend, and lore, if they don't, uh, you know, if they want to make believe that it didn't happen. But to say that uh, it's allegations of a landing is beyond contempt. Way to go, New York Times. Keep it up. Yeah, yeah. It's Well, the whole thing with the files going missing, I mean, does anyone really believe that? I mean, I just presume that they just wouldn't release them. They just took them. No, no. I in mean, fact, um, that was the big BBC story, that they were in, somehow, this batch of ones that had been cleared. Again, we're talking about what you and I would call mid-level or low-level low files, maybe some interesting smoke, but certainly no smoking gun. No, you know, there's not going to be some disclosure-related event that's right. going to be triggered because of the, any of these documents. But the big story was, yes, they, these things were slated for release. They had been cleared, but they're missing. They're missing. And methinks the lady doth protest too much. It's so interesting the way that... Uh, the power brokers continue to dance around this and evade it and do their best to show us a shiny object. Oh, I noticed in today's New York Times, um, the Oxygen Network is going to bring back Paris Hilton for her new reality show where she has a miniature <laughs> pony and a Bentley that's painted pink and we get to watch her go to clubs and things. I mean, give me a break. But this is the America that we've grown into. Um, thank God, I'm sure some of these people in power say for Britney Spears and Charlie Sheen that they are the shiny objects or, you know, these Jersey Shore jerks. Um, it's it's a little embarrassing and kind of enraging that uh, we have so many people in this country who are so easily entertained by something beyond nonsense when, well... At the least, there's reruns of Law and Order. You can always get into those. <laughs> well, you wonder how much is just they've had the fight beaten out of them in a sense. You know. Well, I think that's a good point. And again, the ridicule factor, uh, which I think is one of the most fascinating aspects of human behavior in the post-war years, is still alive and well uh, and attaching itself to UFOs and unrelated subjects. Although, I think every year, a... Another respectable tiny percentage of people crosses the line, yeah. and they don't care, you know, what their friends and neighbors think about the fact that they take it seriously. Uh, that is a positive point, and I see it a little more every year here and in the UK especially. But we're still, you know, considerable distance from that critical mass. Well, that brings me to sort of another big point that I did want to talk about with you, and it's sort of a nice natural segue into that. And that's just, yeah. you know, you've been interested in this for thirty plus years. And we did a year in review episode with with Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern, and we all sort of had the same feeling in a sense that there's just I don't, I, I guess I call it the the malaise, you know, this malaise right now where it feels like ufology is spinning its wheels a little bit. There hasn't been really anything to get excited about in a long time, and and plus we're dealing with a lot of you know parties within ufology, such as you know the disclosure crowd, let's say, you know that that are taking it in directions that aren't exactly what I think are best for the field in the long run. So it's like a double, you know, 
it's like the old school ufology sort of wavering or spinning its wheels and and you know this new generation or new you know new party that's come along is also sort of problematic so i mean how do you deal with the malaise you know cuz you're always you, you you have so much going on you know and you you know you have so many different avenues and you write about so much different stuff and every time i read new stuff from you it's like an, an amazing new take on the different stuff so it's like how do you how do you you know generate the interest how do you keep it going yeah well i i think you know um you uh, nick and greg i'm sorry i missed that show you guys have you know, you're such amazing individuals and come at this from three wonderfully unique directions. Uh, um, but I, I think that, that your take on it is correct. Uh, that's a good term to use. Um, there's no sexy new monster case taking everybody's attention. Um, the most important two books last year were appropriately, in my estimation, um, dry and academic as they should have been, but a very important one was the second installment of uh, Rich Dolan's three-part mm-hmm. series, UFOs in the National Security State. The other far and away uh, was Leslie Keene's fine book, UFOs, uh, Generals, Pilots, and Government, government Officials Speak Out. Uh, but it's not like there was another intruders or, you know, another major, major new thing, the abduction phenomena. Yes, it's going on. Uh, And yes, um, last year, as far as I'm concerned, the two top people in the field were horribly and overwhelmingly irrationally attacked in one case by somebody um, who David Jacobs is working with, who I consider a borderline personality, in the other case, Bud Hopkins' ex-wife. And, you know, there are a lot of what I would call ankle biters and people watching from the wings who say, oh, gosh, you know, uh, maybe they are wrong. And um, so, you know, in certain circles, there's been a re-questioning of their methodology or, you know, their their findings, etc. Um, Bud is quite ill, so, you know, he's not been speaking out very much. Um, as far as me personally, I just keep doing my work, and I try as much as possible to um, reach different audiences with different presentations. Um, Friday, I'm heading up to Buffalo, New York uh, for a weekend with Western New York MUFON. I'll be giving um, an investigator's workshop um, for trained MUFON UFO investigators, but for me, I'm coming at it in a very personal way, starting with my um, my realization from what my dear sister Helen told me 35 years ago about her abduction experience, which blew my mind and changed my life. Um, and although uh, I, I read, you know, uh, the MUFON Investigator's Handbook uh, early on, I've never qualified, but I've learned a lot as an independent and doing crisis intervention work and traveling a lot and through my uh, work as Bud's assistant for many years, um, certainly uh, a lot of hands-on um, techniques, and a lot of it comes down to just being a, a decent person, a good listener, and uh, giving people the respect that they need as they're going through what they're going through. Um, but in the evening, we're going to take a look at that great uh, sci-fi uh, uh, channel when it was the SCI 
FI as opposed to, <laughs> you know, what it is now um, that was made um, about Rendlesham. Uh, give them a uh, background on it. We'll watch it together. Um, I've got a talk that I'll be doing on Wilhelm Reich's uh, UFO-related work um, this summer for an international conference on Reich in Europe, um, a talk for a Tesla conference on um, Wilhelm Reich uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, the second weekend of um, July, I'll be doing a talk on uh, James Forrestal. I, I think part of it for me is just getting people through the door. Yeah. Um, so I like to couch as much of it as possible in post-war American history and lay it on such a tightly woven timeline with real, kosher, above-board, genuine events and weave in the documents and the cover-up uh, in a way that any really straight, um, extremely uh, circumspect person can uh, deal with. Uh, the other thing is, like you, um, working behind the scenes a bit to help local municipalities, that handful of them that have, um, you know, a right, um, a heritage uh, to have an event, to help them, you know, get themselves up and running. It started for me with the McMinnville Festival and uh, when I first started working with them in Oregon in 2003, you and I now uh, are, are very proud of our work with uh, Exeter, New Hampshire for their September event, uh, me with Roswell, and also this year joining the ranks is a tiny little town. You could blink as you go by it. Uh, it's about two hours north of Manhattan called Pinebush. Um, I knew it because uh, when my sister Anne first started uh, her first nursing job was at a little clinic there. But it's sort of like Bonnie Bridge, Scotland, in that it has the highest statistical confirmed analysis of sightings, uh, anomalous events in the woods, multiply witnessed, you know, stuff in the sky of any community in New York State. And oh, they wow. had their yeah. They had their first one day UFO festival and conference uh about six weeks ago and it went quite well. So that's another thing. The other is to network with other folks in the field to try not to, um, you know, get down about what you and Nick and, and, and Greg so well defined because part of it is I'm one of the rare people who's crazy enough to actually be trying to make my living doing this. And of course, I'm a wonderful role model for descending into, uh, property. <laughs> not, I'm, you know, not on food stamps. Um, I'm living very nicely for where I am. But, um, I'm only half joking. Um, it's a terrible career, but it's important work. Terrible career in terms of earnings. Mm -hmm. But I'm really proud, uh, of the contributions I've made. I head into New York next week to do some work with, um, the Sundance, uh, channel, which for the first time, oh, wow. as far as I know, is putting together a, uh, an originally produced show, um, um, a documentary on this subject, and they have a wonderful track record. And every time that you know I get involved in something like that, where I know, you know, somebody in the media is trying to buck the system and pull together something that is respectful, quality, letting the chips fall where they may, you know, um, it just picks me up and off I go. And it's a great feeling to be involved in something like that, but. I'm not sure what it's going to take to get us out of this. Uh, MUFON, of course, is another thing. 
MUFON has been through all kinds of pandemonium the last uh, less than a year with accusations flying here and there with people uh, quitting, uh, state section leaders being fired. You know, I feel for everybody um, and, you know, hope that uh, MUFON can straighten itself out and that the folks who have left from there continue with the great contributions they've made either on their own or with new organizations or however you want to deal with it. I think one of the main things here, Tim, is when you're dealing with a subject that is so vilified, that is so distorted, that is so outsider, that is so important, that so many people in power want to go away, and that those of us that really uh, lend our work, our attention, our intentions to, and some people burn out. Um, or move on to more practical, you know, aspects of life, and this becomes an avocation or a hobby, which I can certainly understand. Um, for me, uh, it's important work, um, and you do what you have to do to continue forward in it, even if it's treading water in a creative way. Um, and, you know, you look at somebody like Nick Redfern. I'm proud to say I knew Nick before he wrote a book, and now he's written... 187, <laughs> yeah. and they're all terrific. I, you know, I love the guy, and he's a wonderful presenter and a very, I think, a very gutsy researcher who gets in between the lines, crosses over into paranormal, cryptozoology, uh, will really look hard at and write a book at something that's considered an unpopular theory, like did Roosevelt really happen, or was it a series of other events that made people believe it was. That went over really big in Roswell when I heard him speak on that a couple of years ago. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. And you know what? I just was so impressed um, because that is the kind of intellectual curiosity and drive I think that makes people talk and think and move forward in this field. You know, Greg, as a great paranormalist, a raconteur, um, a rational um, skeptic, um, you know, he's just another wonderful asset. You know, you are now a regular fixture around the world with your radio show in this amazing era of Internet radio where anybody like you who develops an audience, you know, it just keeps expanding, maybe not geometrically, but arithmetically. And more and more people listen. There's good word of mouth. It's amazing what you can do with guerrilla promotion or self-promotion right now. And when all fails, you know, or is said and done for me, I am one of those people who have, you know, a whole bunch of other passionate interests, whether it's photography or history or theater or architecture. Um, I was lucky enough to get away to Canada about two weeks ago and spent a week in Stratford, which is... Um, probably the largest concentration of actors living in one town in North America. Oh, wow. And it's filled with theaters, um, and two-thirds of the year, it's just alive with activity. And uh, my friend and I, my friends and I went to see two plays, um, uh, one an adaption of John Steinbeck's um, Grapes of Wrath, and the other, um, uh, The Merry Wives of Windsor, one of the few Shakespeare plays I had not seen. And dig this, about 10 minutes before curtain, I'm going through the program. Huge theater in like two-thirds. Yeah. I see that the lead, a uh, character named Falstaff, is played by a uh, 
marvelous Canadian actor who's an old friend of mine who I managed to play for in New York six years ago. Oh, weird. And he was sensational. I, I was waiting for him at the stage door. It was a great reunion. And one of the first things he said is, um, you know, your book is on my shelf, <laughs> which I thought was wonderful because, you know, he obviously hadn't read it, but he didn't want me to think he had forgotten about it or something. And he was <laughs> too honest to say anything else, but it was just very sweet. Uh, anyway, you know, um, life is a very rich thing. And for anybody that uh, is just involved in UFOs, God help you. I know, you yeah. Will, you will go insane. You you will lose your mind. Uh, it's very important to be able to bounce off your own walls and, you know, have a good time and, you know, uh, just get in there and have fun. Yeah. Uh, and lighten the hell up sometimes because this stuff sometimes it makes you feel like you're carrying around the weight of the world. Exactly. And that yeah. is not the way it should be. Exactly, yeah. That's something we've talked about a lot on the show is that need to have other interests and not yeah. take this too seriously because, you know, a lot of great people have, have dedicated their lives and come and gone and didn't yeah. get any answers. So It's true, and we will or we won't. And as far as the disclosure movement goes and exopolitics, I think overall we have a lot of good people, especially in Europe, which we don't hear about that much here, who have formed these kind of activist groups where they put on their own conferences where, you know, if they're overzealous, maybe better that than, you know, not being involved at all, where their aim is to uh, begin to educate government officials and the public at large and more power to them. I think the notion that had been pushed for some time here that especially when uh, uh, President Obama was coming into office that because, you know, one of his key advisors was John Podesta, who we know was on record as taking the subject of excessive UFO secrecy seriously, that disclosure was, you know, three and a half days away. And of course, that was nonsense. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I understand the positive impulse to try to break through this in that way. I just don't feel that it's going to happen, certainly not quite yet. And in a funny way, I think Rich Dolan um, nailed it down in a way when uh, asked, what, do you think disclosure is going to happen with our government? And he said words to the effect of, I don't think the United States government, and I'm very much paraphrasing here for just listening, mm -hmm. I don't think the United States government is ever going to willingly, you know, declassify and disclose what it has about this subject. But I think disclosure is inevitable. And I think what he meant by that, and the way that I feel, more and more the past few years that we've seen phenomena like, although it is quite unique on its own, WikiLeaks. Um, you know, I think about when I was younger and uh, Daniel Ellsberg uh, released this tremendous amount of information on the Vietnam War. And it was a tremendous embarrassment to the government, but it did change things to some degree. And perhaps, um, you know, this, uh, if they don't kill Julian Assange or lock him away in a tiny dungeon for the rest of his life, that he will most certainly, um, have, they have released some UFO information, but it's not out of the question that it may come that way. Who knows? Maybe it'll come at us through an unknown source and just somebody will dump it onto the internet. Yeah. Um, then there are, of course, the wild cards of them. If they ever want us to know that they are here en masse, as opposed to, you know, a few people at a time in sightings or abductions, 
all they have to do is uh, one of my favorite science fiction scenarios, uh, the beginning of V, the original tacky made-for-TV miniseries <laughs> and the kind of creepy uh, remake of it. But I must say, as science fiction, you know, alien-related premises go, I thought it was one of the great kick-ass starts of anything. It's up there with Jules Verne or H.G. Wells or um, uh, Gene Roddenberry, simply that, you know, 60 honking huge motherships pull in over the 60 biggest cities in the world, and they just hang there for a couple of months. Game over. <laughs> and then, of course, it degenerates into every World War II resistance movie I've ever seen in my life, except that instead of Nazis, it's, you know, these uh, uh, male and female modelly-looking aliens here to cure cancer, but really they take off their plastic skins and their reptiles who eat us and mice and are not here for good purposes. Um, so there's... It could change at any moment, right. or you know, it could change not at all, or years from now, or decades, or in a year. Um, it keeps it interesting, but again, I think most of our friends are sleepwalking their way through this. Um, we're not conspiracists. We're not conspiracy theorists. We're not, you know, strange people. We just uh, are onto something that a lot of people either don't have the time or are not comfortable, and God knows who is, uh, looking into and are doing flighty, inconsequential things like paying their bills, raising healthy children, you know, working and keeping their mortgages up. And, of course, I'm being sarcastic here. Um, these are the most important things in life for most people, and more power to them. Uh, and this, you know, the fact that we do this shouldn't change goals like, you know, having a business or falling in love or getting into a great relationship or, you know, um, doing other things that make a difference in the world or in our own little worlds. So that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was perfect. I mean, yeah, you mean you, you nailed a lot of things that, that are that are key here. And, and, you know, I think listening to you just now, it just struck me, too, that in a way, and I, maybe I didn't ever consider this, although I've been kind of thinking this over the past few weeks myself. Yeah. Um, it, it, we're very fortunate in a way that we can pursue this because there's a lot of people that I, I mean, I talk to people, I run into people that you tell them what you do, you tell them, you know, this field that we're in, and, and then you know, their eyes light up and they're interested in this oh, yeah, subject. But is, they don't have the, the the wherewithal or the time to to yeah. pursue it. Well, um, the fact is, we sacrifice quite a bit to do it. Mm -hmm. um, the security of a regular job or living a you know a more you know, straight out kind of life, but we made these choices. Nobody forced us to do it. And I think you're right. Um, through the miracle of Facebook, which I joined initially last year, to primarily be more accessible to readers and people who have heard me on great shows like yours or seen me on television or heard me speak at a conference. And it's been very gratifying to have so many folks in that category um, jump into my life and ask questions or occasionally just check in or say hi or, uh, you know, uh, study the thing more. Um, but the biggest kick for me has been people that have come out of the woodwork of my past, whether it was when I was at the University of Bridgeport uh, a thousand years ago or a student at the School of Visual Arts, or I was back and forth this morning twice with a woman who is now married and has grown up kids 
but I still remember her as this cute little girl with a bowl haircut that sat near me in the first grade. And I haven't seen her in, you know, more years than I want to say, <laughs> yeah. but we're still friends. And we go back and forth every couple of weeks. Um, I did a talk at ARE, the Edgar Casey uh, Foundation's headquarters in New York City, where they occasionally have UFO speakers about six weeks ago. And one of my best buddies from high school showed up, and I hadn't seen him since, like, the 60s. And he's a doctor now, and he brought his wife and son. And it was so much fun and so exciting and so touching. And, you know, it's like, wow, I can't believe you're doing this, man. It's like, wow, I can't believe you became a doctor. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, as Sonny and Cher used to say, the beat goes on. Exactly, yeah. Now, here's something that I'd be interested in getting your perspective on. Not necessarily, you know, what you think is going to happen and all that foolishness, but this this whole 2012 thing. I mean, it's building up. And I've warned people, and I was out having drinks with uh, a buddy of mine who's interested in in the field uh, to a degree around, uh, I think it was the day before the big rapture uh, a few weeks ago. Well, that was, of course, the before and after of all our lives. And uh, (laughs) I was amazing watching the uh, 400,000 most devout Christians ascend to heaven. (laughs) And, of course, you know, have all the demons poking us with pitchforks now, although it doesn't feel much different than it did before the rapture. No, no. Uh, But, you know, it goes to it. I was saying to him, you know, you see, you watch, I watched a lot of, it surprisingly got a lot of coverage on the TV. Uh, I thought it was this little sort of esoteric thing that not too many people knew about. And, of course, multiply that times like 100, it's going to be 2012. And I said, you know, the joke's on us here in in the field, in a sense, because they're not laughing with us. They're laughing at us, even if we don't believe in the 2012 thing. Yeah. Well, I think you brought up several very important points, Tim. Number one, with all due respect to anyone's and everyone's religious beliefs, my feelings, the way that I was brought up in a Reformed Jewish family, um, to understand that the Old Testament is not just true stories related from ancient times, that it was earlier myths, analogies, allegories, morality lessons, uh, fables with um, a lesson attached to them, and that the idea of prophecy... Um, and justifying everything based on it being written down is something that fundamentalist religious thinkers follow. Fundamentalism, by the way, uh, extends across the world of every religion, and it simply refers to completely rigid thinking that things are exactly the way that you interpret them or your leaders interpret them. There is no room for any kind of interpretation. It is just the way it is. And uh, I have gone nose to nose with more fundamentalist Christian UFO researchers than anybody in ufology, as far as I know. And there I have put out a standing um, invitation to go one-on-one or two-on-one or whatever with any of those folks that want to go on stage with me. You know, I don't know scripture as well as they do. But um, in Prophecy, rarely. I mean, I don't remember the last time where, you know, some major prediction uh, relative to, um, you know, somebody's religious beliefs came to pass on this earth. And frankly, the fact that 
the folks out there, especially in the media, of, oh, you're into UFOs, well, you must be interested in ghosts too, and reincarnation, and uh, 2012. Well, maybe, yeah, but the point is, to lump it all together is not just muddying the waters, it's condescending, it's insulting, it's a way of demeaning, you know, the serious work that we do, but you know, so much of 2012 prophecy is based on the Mayan calendar. Not that I know anyone that is fluent in Mayan. They just dig all this pop culture stuff that it's going to be the end of the world. Yeah. I think that there's a slight misinterpretation there. I think that the Mayan calendar suggests that in 2012, correct or not, we'll find out, there will be a shift in universal thinking or something uh, that will not end life on Earth, will in fact, um, you know, cause a change of some sort in our perception of ourselves. And, or, that they may have simply done the math not quite right, and, you know, the same way that these jerks, and I don't know what else to say, um, that put forward that um, the ascension into heaven uh, that uh, the end times were upon us two and a half weeks ago, this primarily came from a multimillionaire evangelical radio host who sat down and did a lot of math and said that, uh, you know, it was going to happen two and a half weeks ago. And what really got to me was a few days before, I was listening to National Public Radio, as I sometimes do, and they were doing a series of interviews with folks who were taking this very seriously, fundamentalist Christian people, who were certainly um, decent, hardworking, I, I would hope kind, you know, life-affirmative folks, living their lives, working their jobs, paying their mortgages, raising their kids, who were so convinced it was going to happen to him that they had quit their jobs. They were spending their savings. They were just reading scripture and spending time with their family, waiting to either ascend to heaven or to be left behind, as they say. <laughs> and they're in even more financial trouble now than they were. Right. This, to me, is unconscionable. And it, you know, it, it's the thing that really gets to me the most. But I'm, I think it's absolute nonsense. And I would bet you dollars to donuts there will be people a tiny handful, even if it's one, who at some point after were not all destroyed in flaming cataclysm in uh, uh, a year and a half or so, will actually be going to court and using as a defense for having to default on a loan or something that, Your Honor, um, you know, I thought it was the end of the world. So, I, you know, I was just acting according to what my... Uh, religious philosophy dictates. Mark my words, there's going to be some puff piece on the news about it. Um, and I'm not trying to make fun of these people. I think it's tragic. Um, it is so easy to mislead people, and more and more we're seeing it with our leaders who are more and more under the influence of corporatists and people who are just moving the money around from folks who used to be middle class, who are now more and more in the surf category, yeah. to the super, super rich, and making believe it's about safety and patriotism and freedom and all of this crap. And those things are not crap, but the illusion that they're perpetrating on the American public is unconscionable. It's treasonous as far as I'm concerned. And 
you know, these people should be rid out of town on a rail, as they say. But um, I don't know what we do to stop it. We, the people, are getting railroaded. And it's no different in the world of UFO studies, where for every quality contribution, and again, I point back to, say, Leslie Keene's fine book last year, um, there are going to be folks in positions of tremendous power that are going to be biting the ankles of people like Leslie or looking to take them down overtly or covertly or innuendo or suggestion. And the newest uh, um, kind of example of this in opposite form is a book that came out really about three weeks ago or so by a, uh, a writer with the Los Angeles Times, uh, um, a technology correspondent, as I recall, um, named Jacobson, and it's a book on the history of Area 51. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, her sources are, have let her know in no uncertain terms, and uh, of course they're quality sources, and she went with them, that all this UFO stuff is nonsense, and, you know, it has nothing to do with the history of this highly classified test range and military facility in Nevada, which, by the way, is bigger than Holland. <laughs> uh, I've been as close as you can get without getting shot at it. Um, and it's it's just beyond belief how large it is, although out west, you know, spaces go on and on. And that book is probably a good book in other respects, but it will help perpetrate the myth that, you know, this whole UFO thing, and right now in terms of black technology, whether it's back engineering or what have you, um, is nonsense and certainly any association with other intelligence highly advanced craft and that uh, mythical base, that not mythical, that legendary base, um, you know, um, scholars, uh, thinkers, people with degrees, uh, folks who uh, take themselves seriously are going to read the book. And, well, it's in the book, so, you know, she wouldn't have gotten that wrong. She's a smart, well-connected reporter. And so the mind will continue to reinforce itself around that misnomer. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wilbon. Tony, some people believe the world will come to an end tomorrow. What are you going to do between now and then? I'm Tony Kornheiser. Eat something I've never tried before, like a hamster. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Have you seen Facebook ever in your life? No, I haven't. You might want to take a look. I used to see Red Book when I went to beauty parlors <laughs> yeah, with my mom. I'm sure. That's a long well, time ago. Well, this is about as harmless as that. The difficult part, too, with that that whole thing, especially what you're talking about here with the Area 51 book, is that you know a lot of people won't read the book, but they'll just see her on some segment on CNN, or I think she was on the Daily Show, even. Yes. You know, right. and then that's all people will. It's like the Doug and Dave thing with the crop circles. You know, yeah, just be, you know I saw the lady on Daily Show, and it's not true that there's you know. You're absolutely right, because that, of course, will be one of the first questions that she's asked, and I'm sure she'll smile knowingly and, you know, shake her head and explain as carefully as she can that her research, which, of course, is, uh, I'm sure, high quality and very scholarly in most, uh, if not all respects, outside of this particular aspect, is, of course, you know, these folks who long to believe in life in the universe and uh, a new pantheon of gods to take us away from our, you know, earthbound problems. And, you know, it's a shame that it gets 
kind of associated with serious government projects and real science and real history. And the majority of the public will believe it because every single major media outlet is owned by a corporation. NBC is owned by GM, uh, a huge, huge monster government contractor, and so on down the line. Um, so, you know, even good old CNBC or... Uh, you know, other seemingly more open venues are going to, um, you know, be seen as, well, that's just a lefty station. Uh, and what do they know? Um, you know, you got to pick through your sources. There's um, a handful of them that I keep going back to. And, um, you know, they're independents often or not owned by major corporations. And that's why folks don't hear about them. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, luckily, Leslie Keene did get some good mainstream media Without press, too. Question. She put the book out. Absolutely. The book uh, was very well received by a, a surprising number of folks in the so-called straight world, and I think it was a very good strategic decision of Leslie, who is a fine journalist and a, a, a quality writer, to decide rather than to write treatments of these distinguished military pilots or generals or um you know, respected government officials who have been willing to put their accounts on the line rather than do extensive interviews with them and write them up to invite them to write their own chapters in the book uh, and then bracket it with her own work. Um, it is one of those books that I think uh, belongs at the same level as uh, Tim Good's Seminal Above Top Secret, you know, Rich Dolan's uh, Too Fine uh, volumes on UFOs in the national security state, and a small handful of other books that you can uh, always hold your head up and loan out to, you know, the worst skeptic or debunker and say, you want to argue with me or make fun of what <laughs> I uh, know is true? Read this, get back to me in a couple of months, and let's sit down and talk. You know, it blasts them out of the water. They're just exhausting on a certain level to fight against and rationalize against and you know, um, just spin your own wheels until you say, hmm, maybe there is something to this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, those are all fantastic books. Well, it does seem like there's this, you wonder if the Area 51, I'm sure it was in the, in the works for a while, but it seems like it's almost like a pushback against what has been sort of a better yeah. uh, treatment of UFOs in the last few years. So That's maybe there's like point. this PR war going on that yes, we're Yes, it may of. well be. Either, you know, there is some... Um, overseeing a group that will intercede in a way or uh, commission a project or encourage a project here or there, or it is just the natural human tendency of certain folks out there to say, oh, enough of this UFO nonsense. Yeah. It's time for me to put my PhD to good use and flatten <laughs> this nonsense once and for all. Um, in fact, I I'm one of those people that subscribe to uh, the theory that there are very few uh, agent provocateurs out there and that there are an awful lot of useful scholars and useful idiots that simply jump into the roles and don't need much encouragement. Um, this summer, we're going to see a whole new spate of, you know, alien and UFO movies. The one I'm looking forward to the most is the Spielberg movie, which has got to have one of the best titles in years, Cowboys and Aliens. Oh, yeah. We're going to go back to the Old West, and I'm wondering how much of it is sort of uh, intertwined with the myth, legend, lore, fact of that famous uh, late 19th century Texas 
case. Oh, the Aurora. uh, Yeah, which I love. It's a wonderful story about, you know, a machine from parts unknown that crashes in the small town in Texas and this being that they protect and hide and ultimately give a decent funeral to when it passes. Um, Happened, didn't happen, who knows? Uh, There is actually a film version that I don't think it was, if it was theatrically released, it, it coasted through. It's talking about 1986 or so. It's called the Aurora Incident. If you can ever find it, maybe it's available through Netflix or something. It's completely disarming. It's it's very, it's a very good-spirited film. It's very affecting and touching, and you know, just one of those things that makes you think. Uh, but again, you know, the um, this spring the movie Paul about you know the slacker goofball alien, um, you know, who smokes pot and you know talks uh, the way that. Uh, any contemporary hipster uh, would, <laughs> and uh, is um, played by, uh, oh, what's his name? Seth uh, Rogen was the voice. You yeah. got it. Yeah, how perfectly cast. It was fun. It was goofy. It was lighthearted. And I don't think that demeans, you know, serious studies. There was nothing mean-spirited or condescending about it. It was just, you know, a send-up, so to say. And we're going to see that around controversial topics for as long as there are controversial topics. I think in a way it's a good, you know, steam valve or release. Uh, We have to be able to laugh at this stuff and the best people in the field, as far as I'm concerned, have some of the most sensational senses of humor because if we can't laugh about it, God help us. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, you touched on it too earlier that Every year it seems like a little bit more people sort of cross the line. I, I do yeah. think it's a generational thing in a lot of ways yeah. where, the, the you know, as as the next generation comes along, this this thing will take on a new flavor, if you will. Yeah. Well, you reminded me of one of my favorite quotes um, by a uh, – I'm trying to remember whether he uh, was a Nobel Prize winner, but a very distinguished uh, scientist, Max Planck, and the quote is, science proceeds one funeral at a time. <laughs> Yeah, so. uh, yeah. The old guard sometimes has to vaporize before it is a more accepted um, fact, or um, you know, predisposition or philosophical construct that more people are comfortable with. And I think that is the case now. You know, we have a generation of twenty and even thirty-somethings that have never been alive without a certain amount of pop culture feedback in part generated by very well-written scripts in the first seven of the ten years of The X-Files and a number of other, you know, great shows and treatments and very hip movies um, where, yeah, what else is new? And you talk to any kid, and it's like, do you believe in life in outer space? And they look at you like you're crazy, like, as opposed to what? You know, of course, in even the most conservative, uh, reactionary, um condescending toward UFO astronomer will easily concede that there are likely millions of Earth-sized planets from sun-sized stars where that primordial ooze and possibility of the chemistry coming together or if you're theologically inclined, the miracle of creation taking hold and not having you know a life form based on silicone or ammonia but on carbon and oxygen and those good things like we have. But, of course, they've never been here. And if they were, they would know. Of course, they're looking up when it's right behind them. And, of course, they're not going to read any of these silly UFO books. They're serious scientists or, you know, uh, 
practitioners of history or what have you. And I, I wouldn't even lower myself to that. I mean, how they can't be good. If it was a real subject, we in the more intellectual or educated or scientific community would know. It, for me, the mantra for folks like that is it can't be, therefore it isn't, therefore it's something else. On to the next subject. Yeah. It's unfortunate. You wonder when it's going to turn around, if it's going to be an organic thing or if it's going to be, like uh, we were saying here, something that could be that, that, that's forced out. Do you know what I mean? It'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds. Well, I think it's basically a chess game on some level where we don't see the pieces being moved, but we know or can, I think, rationally assume that within the highest levels of the world's insider intelligent community, intelligence communities or however you want to see it or say it, you have probably individuals that do feel it is long overdue and are, you know, intense standoffs or in constant debate with other folks who say no. You know, it's it's like the pearl around the original little grain of sand now is so big. And I'll forget about the fallout from disclosure. All of the initial things that would have to be set in motion, because no one world leader can do this, would have to be coordinated with leaders around the world. Everybody would have to be prepared for any eventuality and possibility. I like to think sometimes that there are coordinated educational things going on behind the scenes to prepare us. Uh, look at what the, um, the Roman Catholic Church has been doing the last 20 years. Of all of the controlling, uh, conservative, um, dead set in their ways, um, religions in the world, the Catholic Church is really leading the way to, at the least, hold seminars, open conferences on the likelihood of other intelligences in outer space coming and going with impunity. They're at least doing something to prepare their flocks, um, to give um, prelates an opportunity to debate how should we deal with this? But the fact that they are openly conceding that, yes, we are not alone, and we should be prepared for the possibility of having to, you know, acknowledge this publicly at some point in the future. I don't know what their ulterior motives are. I think sometimes it's behind, you know, all of the uh, interesting possibilities. It's simply, hey, these beings, you know, even if they have their own religion or they're spiritual, They've got to be brought to the true faith. So we've got to breed a whole bunch of recruiters here to bring them to Christ. And that is what it's all about, or else they're going to die in eternal damnation. And I don't care why they're doing it. I just think it's kind of interesting and in its own strange way a lot healthier than repressing the possibility or not having it be anything even remotely open to discussion within most religious factions, Judeo-Christian, Hindu, Islam, uh, Buddhists take it. Well, Buddhists are kind of, you know, they're open to so much um, um, of change and inevitability and uh, on a certain level rolling with the cosmic punches. Um, they, they really are uh, more in a class by themselves. Um, however, uh, you know, when you play with a cat and you stick your hand under like a blanket 
and you move your hand around and the cat gets really animated and gets very involved. Cats are super smart animals. The cat knows your hand is under the blanket, but it is still playing the game with you because play is an elevated form of experience. Now, that's the way I see history sometimes. The hand is moving under the blanket, and we're reacting to the blanket moving and ascribing all kinds of meaning and things, but something else is going on, um, and it's something to ponder. Now, you've referenced sort of like the them behind the UFO phenomenon, and I think that, you know, in a way, trying to determine the makeup of what the them is is sort of an, <laughs> an, an exercise in futility, of course. Oh, yeah. That's a big wheel spinner. <laughs> but, of course, you get the you get the people that have, the, you oh, know. They know who the thems are, and they'll <laughs> fill you in on the details. Okay. So have you have you pondered that question at all? You know, obviously there's all these camps, the ETAs, decades, interdimensional. Absolutely. I've given it thought for 35 years without question. And, you know, obviously it's impossible really to come to any conclusions. I know obviously some people do. I feel like you obviously haven't. That's what I'm getting oh, at. Oh, I am but. absolutely clear, Tim, that I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> um, what, I, what I mean by that is I'm in a position to make better educated guesses than a lot of people. And when, you know, I first got myself in a snit about this in the 70s, I was like, you know, every young zealot that ever entered into the field. They're from outer space. You know, power to the people, let us know, confirm it, release what you have. Well, sure, they're from outer space. Um, are they from the dark side of the moon or Neptune or Pluto? I don't think so. Do they live on Saturn or, you know, under the ground on Mars? Well, I don't know. Are they from way out in the cosmos? Very likely. Um, Alpha Centauri, the Pleiades, the Dog Star? Maybe, maybe not. Are, ah, but are they from another dimension? Right. Well, maybe. Are are they, you know, people that live under us for millennia and have their own civilization and come and go from, you know, very, very remote areas through openings in the earth? Maybe. Um, are they from other places under our ground? Maybe. Um, are we under our ground? Definitely. Um, are they us from a million years in the future coming back to correct a few little tiny errors. I, you know, for me, when you catch yourself having opened the Pandora's box and then seeing all of the lids to these other Pandora's boxes and saying, well, now that's just silly. They can't be time travelers. I, I don't think that that's, you know, likely, but who the hell am I? to say that it's not because that doesn't wash with me, I don't know. I do know we're not alone. There are other intelligences that come and go with impunity. Certainly some of them possess technology that boggles the human imagination, that they are not only, you know, more, more than we imagine, to paraphrase a famous quote, but more than we can imagine, um... And probably, likely, it is a combination. And of the other intelligences, they may well span the gamut in terms of their relationship with this wonderful little speck that shoots through the universe that we call the Earth that is our home, or with us. We may be somebody's graduate experiment gone horribly wrong. Um, as Stan Friedman once said, uh, the beings that come here, maybe it's okay. 
rather than going to jail, you know, on the planet Zenu, <laughs> you're going to Earth for five years. You want to find out what's shaking down? Check that baby out. Um, I don't know. But I'll tell you what, I respect what I don't understand. And every once in a while, and every speaker worth their salt in ufology will bear this out, every once in a while after a talk, you know, people come up to you, nice talk, I've got a question for you, uh, good luck. Somebody will come up to you and say, you know, I, I thought your talk was very interesting, but, you know, there are 87 different civilizations that are visiting the Earth. And <laughs> the ones from the Pleiades, uh, this is what they look like. These are the ships that they're in. They eat spiders, mice, and glass. And this is what their philosophy is. And then, of course, you have, you know, the Greys and, and the Nordics and and if they don't seem really deranged and don't have you too tightly in the corner, you have several options, which is, gee, that's very interesting. How do you know that? And they are have a limited number of answers. Um, uh, well, um, I, I read it in, in a book or I saw it in a documentary or it came to me in a dream or they told me. And for true believers and folks who adhere to set theory on you know, welcome the space people, or they're from uh, Venus, or they are from the Pleiades, and I know it because it was confirmed when I read this book, and then, you know, a channeler confirmed it for me, and I'm not saying that, you know, I don't, it's just when you get dogmatic and believe in a set theory in this work, it's functionally identical to religion, because you yeah. believe, because you have faith. For me, I enter, if I have any value in this field, it's because one of my overt, open, secret weapons is I begin every new investigation as clear-headed and without any agenda as possible. And the, way, the reason I say it like that, Tim, is because you and I, Nick, um, so many good people in the field who have done the work, at a certain point in our investigations... And for me, if I didn't know it earlier, and I certainly did, um, Rendlesham would be the one that would break the back. And yes, it's real. And if this were a court of law, I could put forward the evidence that Larry and I collected over nine years and present it the same way that exhibits would be presented in a murder trial. And I am convinced I could sway a jury or a judge or a group of peers beyond any reasonable doubt that it's real. Now, that understood... From that point on, the investigator always suffers from the possibility that because they know it's real, they will, with sometimes without even meaning to or wanting to, it will be the secret agenda or the unconscious agenda in their next investigation. And you can't do that. My investigatory model is Arthur Conan Doyle's wonderful Sherlock Holmes character, who I was introduced to at about 12 years old. Uh, Conan Doyle was a wonderful writer, and of course Holmes is the detective's detective. And one of the things that made him the legendary uh, literary character he was is he followed a, uh, a methodology called deductive reasoning. And it's very simple. You begin your investigation looking at the mystery or the crime, what have you, at the lowest phenomenological level. You look for the most boring, mundane explanation possible, and you investigate it fully. 
And if you're unable to establish that as the cause, you take one tiny step up the ladder and investigate the second most mundane possibility. Now, this is boring, rote work, <laughs> but it's the best way to proceed, I think. And for me, I had three real mentors in the field, best known Bud Hopkins, certainly, um, a, a wonderful a retired Hungarian Army staff officer who was uh, the chief photo analyst for the Hungarian Army during World War II and quite a military scientist, and a tough, no-nonsense, Italian Catholic Brooklyn, New York City police detective, Pete Mazzola, who also happened to be uh, a great UFO investigator, may rest in peace. And he taught me to look into such matters the way that cops investigate criminal behavior and felonies. And that model has never failed me. I mean, I certainly haven't been perfect. But again, it's not as sexy as I've got, you know, this inside contact in the Pentagon or, uh, you know, I've got um, this secret source in the American intelligence community. I can't tell you who it is or I have to kill you. Or, you know, I've been <laughs> this 50,000-year-old disembodied spirit was channeled to me in a reading, and I know there's nothing, you know, really um, neon lights about the way that I work. Um, but the work that I do produce, um, I think, is pretty solid. Absolutely. And... It's it's the best way I know to proceed in this field, and also the one that I think ultimately garners the most respect and has the best chance of bringing somebody who's on the borderline or who wants to take it more seriously, but is so conditioned by the media, by government, by popular culture, that, you know, it's flying saucers, for gosh sakes, and, you know, we all know they're not real, uh, and if they are, well, you know, they've never been here, or we'd know it. It would be the biggest event in history to be on the front page of every newspaper in the world. Not. <laughs> yeah, well, what you've been saying kind of makes me also think about something that's been sort of rattling around my head lately, too. And that's just that, you know, regardless of what the them is, when you, you know, acknowledge that they're out there, <laughs> that changes your worldview. And in, in, a, in a good way, I think, you know, as long as you don't let it get out of control. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it can be a humbling – that's how I am, at least. It's a humbling yeah. sort of feeling to know that, you know, man isn't the pinnacle of, of all this. Yeah, I think so too, Tim. And I think it's important to remember that for a lot of folks – well, for all of us, if you take it down to the hairpins, fear is fear of the unknown. Am I going to get cancer? Is my, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend going to break up with me? Am I going to win the lottery? Um, you know, are they going to have um, social security by the time I'm eligible? Is uh, an earth fault going to part and all my friends fall into, uh, you know, a, a giant flaming hole in California? <laughs> or am I going to hit by a tornado, which seem to uh, be appreciating all over uh, our wonderful country? But... This fear of the unknown for me, years ago, with something of a smile on my face, I realized in the Western world, pretty much everything is over here. And on this side is sex, death, and UFOs. <laughs> but yeah, um, for me, when people get really in your face about it or sarcastic or condescending or outright you know, aggressive that, you know, what kind of grown-up are you wasting your time on this? I try to remember that behind, you know, their posturing and all that nonsense, 
they're anxious or they're frightened or they're challenged. And that usually lets me cut them a little extra slack before they have to chop them in half with words. And, you know, don't mess me with, with me with that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it is humbling. I think overall it is healthy. Look, here we are on this amazing little planet, and this planet is in terrible, terrible trouble. In fact, you know, like a organism that has cancer and is fighting it, this planet has an infestation that is slowly killing it, and we are the infestation. Mm-hmm. We are the enemy of ourselves, and part of it has to do with something that is I, it's such a highly charged subject that it splits voters across this country, and it's used to manipulate people like crazy. It is sexuality, procreation, and birth control. We are the victims of overpopulation, and nobody wants to get in the way of anybody having, you know, well, I can have as many kids as I want, and don't get in my face about it, you know, the old feeling, um, uh, way back, and as recently as, you know, 100, 200 years ago, was you've got to have a lot of kids, or, you know, some of them are going to die when they're young, and you want to have uh, one or two at least to take care of you when you're old. Yeah. And that kind of logic has fed the insanity. And other things, too, uh, the fact that the church uh, mystifies procreation. And, you know, there's, you remember the life of Brian, that amazing Monty Python movie years mm-hmm. ago? Mm-hmm. There was a song in there, absolutely deadpan in chorus, that every sperm is sacred. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep. Well, welcome to that world. Um, you know, if we're not going to control ourselves, what the... I think prevailing thinking is, especially among theologically inclined people, is what we need is a great plague or cataclysms that will level the playing field and, you know, that Bangladesh will, you know, be flooded and that, uh, you know, um, folks in this, in Africa will be wiped out by AIDS and, you know, we can reestablish, you know, some farms there, except that it's too late because most of it's desert right now because we have uh, done so little to uh, conserve. Anyway, on and on. We're off on a tangent here, but it all relates. And again, we need as many shiny objects. Unfortunately, the powers that be need as many shiny objects, whether, again, it's the newest reality series or um, a so-called serious book that takes our attention away from highly specialized, scholarly, terrific uh, research to underscore the reality of these other intelligences and the technology they possess. And, you know, gee, I can't imagine two or three and a half, uh, two and a half men without Charlie Sheen. You know, how is it <laughs> going to be? Um, and I'm, you know, only half joking here. Um, it's, it's the world we live in, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. All the more reason that for a core of us, this is a noble direction to pursue. And, you know, um, I am so proud of so many of our colleagues for doing just that and continuing to fight the good fight. Absolutely. That's what we got to do because the pool is shrinking, it, it seems. But I hope for more, you know, the next generation, the young generation. I, I, I feel old now myself. I was the, the young guy when I started out in this thing, but I've been <laughs> doing this. Yeah, now you're 87. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way. 
<laughs> oh man. Um, well, you know, while we're kind of coming into the home stretch here, yeah. it occurred to me that um, a paper that I wrote uh, in '09 that I've revised since. Um, it's that politics, UFOs, and human nature talk. Um, I was able to uh, really do some of, I think, my best work, and it, it now runs about 40 pages or so. Oh, wow. I, I'm really proud of it. Uh, but after the basic introduction, um, I have several quotes here, and it's a good note to close on. I think it's time to open the books on questions that have remained in the dark, on the question of government investigations of UFOs. It's time to find out what the truth really is that's out there. We ought to do it because it's right. We ought to do it because the people, the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. John Podesta, now presidential advisor Podesta. Second quote. I've never met Dennis Kucinich, and I don't know Governor Richardson. No, I don't think there are UFOs. No, I don't think the government... What the hell are we talking about? This has gone downhill real quick. Joseph Biden, now Vice President Biden. Last quote. You know, I don't know, and I don't presume to know. What I do know is that there is life here on Earth, and that we are not attending to life here on Earth. Barack Obama, now President Obama. What do you think that says, though? <laughs> I think it says that we have a presidential advisor who is appointed, who takes the subject seriously, and uh, like Governor Richardson before he was kind of forced to back down after uh, Dennis Kucinich um, was open enough to uh, report that he had had a UFO sighting with his wife and their friend Shirley McLean. Ha ha ha. <laughs> of course. Um, while they were in a rural area of California, um, that we have a, you know, a healthy point of view there. That we have one politician who thinks it's a big joke and another politician who is evading the subject and probably very unknowledgeable about it and certainly was at that time. This kind of defines three prevailing power views that are going on. Uh, the least effective is Podestas, uh, although, you know, he's in there and he's not backing down, but it's not a sexy position. He wasn't elected. He is not a, a first-tier person whose name we hear every day. He's just somebody in the know on a certain level where the vice president thinks it's a big joke, and the president has other things to put his attention to. And welcome to the wonderful world of American politics. Exactly, yeah. That's where we're at nowadays, but mm -hmm. <laughs> you get what you pay for, I suppose, right? You know, wrapping things up here, what, what do you have cooking you know, throughout the rest of 2011 and, and you know, on the horizon? What, what do you have well, on the Well, I'm putting my affairs in order for the destruction of the world next year, <laughs> uh, primarily, uh, you know, giving away possessions and uh, spending my huge uh, savings. Um, uh, actually, I'm continuing to do what I do. Um, as I mentioned, um, uh, I have a talk coming up uh, this coming weekend for Western New York MUFON in uh, Buffalo. I'll be speaking at a uh, conference on Nikola Tesla the first weekend in uh, July in Pennsylvania um, on the life and work of Dr. Wilhelm Reich, who has uh, had an extraordinary uh, 
amount of UFO-related observations uh, and work. The second weekend, I'll be speaking for um, Pennsylvania MUFON in Philadelphia. Oh, it's the third weekend, in fact, because Pennsylvania MUFON uh, has something that um, I think is official in Pennsylvania, which is that the 16th of July is UFO Awareness Day in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And I will be speaking at a conference in Philadelphia on uh, the strange death of our first Secretary of Defense, who I consider... Uh, an early casualty of the UFO uh, cover-up, and I think I make a very good case for that. Um, I will be back in uh, England in early September, uh, September 10th, at a conference in Woodbridge, Suffolk. If all goes well, and I'm, my fingers are crossed, but um, I, I believe that when I see the uh, plane ticket, I will be giving two papers at an international conference on the life and work of Wilhelm Reich, in central Greece oh, wow. in uh, August. Uh, again, uh, that's that's not absolutely confirmed, but my fingers are crossed. Nice. Um, I'll be speaking um, in Rochester, New York, for a terrific meetup group uh, and a very, very well-organized one in October on um, the deaths of um, key authors, investigators, UFO researchers, um, that many folks feel were murdered. And I've spent quite a few years doing a pretty careful analysis of them, uh, some of them very famous, some of them lesser known. Um, but for me, it was a project that I took very seriously when I really started to undertake it. I realized I not only had met a few of these people, but that three of them were my friends. Oh, wow. And I don't mean just, you know, passing acquaintances. They were my friends. And uh, so you better believe I looked into that big time. And, of course, we'll be, you know, back uh, together on the air before then, and I'll give all the particulars for anybody in the Rochester area that might be able to join us here in New York State on that. Um, I know I've got a couple of more talks coming up in Pennsylvania. Bless Pennsylvania MUFON's heart for having me there so often, um, keeping my fingers crossed that um, this year we'll see the return of the terrific uh, um, crash uh, con, as we call it, the um, uh, the uh, crash retrieval conference that's been held with the exception of last year for the previous seven years in November in Nevada. Oh, yeah. That uh, Ryan Wood has done such a great job of organizing over the years. A number of us are waiting to hear from Ryan. And, um, you know, um, watching the skies as always and uh, wait, well, waiting for the aliens to tell me the next message of the thing I must do. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, UFO Matrix Magazine, people should check that yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I'm a columnist. Um, the column is called uh, On Assignment. Uh, the magazine comes out every month. Uh, look for it in your local Barnes & Noble store. It's a good magazine. And, uh, of course, everybody out there should, uh, I think, also be checking out uh, the uh, terrific uh, Open Minds magazine, which continues to hold up great production values and very interesting articles. And, um, you know, I'm available. I'm not one of those people that hides out. Uh, they can get my email address through you. They can come and visit me or maybe be my friend on Facebook. Um, you have a question for me, uh, I'm accessible. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I answer every single one with the best thing I can make up um, at $5 each. <laughs> oh, man. On that note, it's good to end on a laugh. So <laughs> it's been great, Peter. I always enjoy talking to you. i got to get you back on. Send me that 
that yeah. uh, paper on, on the UFO-related deaths. I'd I love will. to look I'll, at that. I'll get it out to you tonight in its uh, latest incarnation. Yeah, we'll, and, we'll discuss um, that in the future sometime for sure. Yeah, I, I'm. Um, it's one of those papers where even though it's copywritten, for anyone that feels that it's important enough to share with a friend, as long as it is intact... Uh, it is one of those papers that um, I'm happy to see go viral, that anybody can post or disseminate or share in any form with anybody they want. And I'll get that to you tonight, Tim. Oh, yeah, I'd love that. Cool. Uh, well, you know, as I said, I, I love talking to you. We're going to ha- definitely have you on again, you know, you in too, the brother. future. So it's just been great catching up and sort of just having a little jam session here and, yeah. and sort of, you know, pondering uh, the very nature of this mystery. Indeed, and uh, a pleasure being back with you online. Uh, look forward to getting together with you, hopefully before the end of the year, and um, let's speak in the next month or so and see if we can put something together for a return maybe late this summer. In the meantime, always a pleasure, Tim. You're a dear friend, a good colleague, and uh, please send my best wishes to your mom. Absolutely, Peter. It's been great having you on the show again. Thanks, Tim. That does it for this edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to my good buddy Peter Robbins for coming back on the show. Be sure to check him out on Facebook. Punch in Peter Robbins, and he'll pop right up on the search engine. Then you can find out what he's got cooking for the future and what he has going on in the present. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. We've got three emails here. And I'm going to dive right in, but before I do that, let's just take care of the in-house notes. I already told you at the beginning of the show that the big audio migration has happened, so hopefully everybody who has been missing out on the program all these many weeks and months have gotten their BOA audio fix. The many, many, many emails from confused and frightened listeners have ceased Thank you once again to all the great folks out there who were emailing me over the past couple of months, just pulling their hair out in frustration or confusion as to the missing BOA Audio archives. It was a tenacious project, it was a difficult project, but I am psyched to tell you that it is complete and BOA Audio continues to live on. Now, let's dive into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. First up, we have a topic suggestion from Kirk, no hometown listed, but here's what he has to say. Here's an offbeat topic for you to consider, from Wikipedia. The Beishima was a steel 1,300-ton cargo steamer, built in 1914 in Sweden, and owned by the Hudson Bay Company. It was used to trade pelts for provisions in Inuit settlements along the Victoria Island coast of the Northwest Territories of Canada. It became a notable ghost ship, along the Alaska coast. And Kirk also cites a book here to check out, Beishimo Arctic Ghost Ship by Anthony Dalton, and provides a couple of website links for me to check out. And for those folks who want to look into this, the ship name is Beishimo, and that's spelled B-A-Y-C-H-I-M-O, and there's a very good chance I mispronounced it. Uh, nonetheless, I will definitely look into that. Thank you for writing, Kirk. I appreciate the input and suggestion. We're going way off the beaten path here in Season 6, and I think the Beishimo is certainly something to consider, although maybe I'd put that under an overall umbrella of 
ghost ships or inanimate ghost objects, if you will. You know, ghost trains, ghost cars. Are there ghost cars? I don't know. Maybe ghost planes. That's something worth looking into, but I will sort of dip my toe into the water first, look into the Beishimo, and see if that can lead us into that area of discussion. So thank you for the suggestion, Kirk. I really do like that one. It's very interesting. Raises a lot of interesting questions about the ghost phenomenon if we're seeing ghost ships and as I created just now fictionally ghost cars, which I presume actually do exist in some form of uh, anecdotal evidence. <laughs> what am I talking about? Anyway, yeah, so I'm going to look into this. The Beishimo, very interesting. Once again, thank you for the topic suggestion, Kirk. Speaking of suggestions, next up we have an email from Chris in Melbourne, Australia. International listener, ring the bell. Thank you for writing in Chris all the way from down under. He has a guest suggestion, and here is his email. He says, Any chance you can get Joseph Goda, author of The Lenin Prophecy? I have heard him in short 30-minute interviews, and they have always been interesting. Your show format would allow him to touch on many other areas of The Beatles and his book that other shows have not touched. Just an idea I thought I'd pass on. Thanks for the great shows. Always a pleasure to listen to. Cheers, Chris in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you once again for writing in, Chris. Also, another off-the-beaten-path topic here with the Lenin prophecy. Very interesting. I have heard of Joseph Goda. Also, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that as well. You guys are really challenging me here this week on the program. But I have heard of his stuff. I've heard of the book. I will definitely check that out. I can tell you that I am really close to bringing on a different music conspiracy-related guest for the program in the not-too-distant future. I've already sort of done the research, hoping to bring the guest on the program. It's going to be a wild one if we can get that one in the can. I don't want to tease anything more about it, though, until that is a go. And I will definitely look into Joseph Niesgoda and his book, The Lenin Prophecy. As I said, I've heard about it. I find it interesting. I definitely would dig that quite a bit. So it's certainly something that is in my wheelhouse, but was not on my radar. So thank you for suggesting it, Chris, and I will definitely check it out. And the final email should give you some food for thought. It comes from John, no hometown listed. A bit of a long one, but definitely worth the read. He says, Shalom. Really enjoy your website. I am a friend of Dr. Mike Heiser, Linmar Zuli, Richard Hoagland, and others. I do not agree with them about some of their efforts. Dr. Heiser has more knowledge than most. Instead of all the hype about the return of the Nephilim, I teach return of the sons of Elohim, gods, the lesser of the divine kingdom that rebelled the authority of Yahweh, Creator, Father, Most High, Ancient of Eons, etc. These are the ones who did evil with Ha-Adam. The Nephilim were victims and later rulers of injustice. The Divine Council has many beings of the kingdom. The wrong influence came about by man and these others who came at first to show us how to live. They had orders, but revolted with us. Lawlessness is rampant today. The Ten Commandments are pushed aside for man-made traditions. Jesus said, just as it was in Noah's day, so will it be. It is a shame that Nakash, Shining One, has gotten people to think that Yah's royal commands has been nailed to the cross. 
every area of our lives are blessed or doomed by God's set-apart way of life. The scary thing is most are not set apart, but a great part of the great lie. The only hope we have is to trust and obey. Many antichrists are lying to church folk behind pulpit. Thank you for your work, and may his love shine from you. John, No Hometown Listed. I don't really have anything to say in response to that email. Very interesting stuff. I don't even understand a lot of it. I don't really know what John is saying here. I guess I'd have to ask him to extrapolate and, and tell us more about his theories here on the Elohim and the Nephilim and this, uh, this you know, uprising, if you will. Reminds me of the film I'm really excited about, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, for some reason. I don't know. That's just the first thing that popped into my head as I was reading that email. But it was poetic almost, John, so thank you for that. Thought-provoking email, interesting email. I appreciate your writing. Thank you for uh, putting me over and for uh, being a BOA Audio listener, sir. And uh, once again, thank you for the very uh, compelling correspondence. So that wraps up BOA Audio listener feedback. Thanks to John, thanks to Chris, and thanks to Kirk. If you want to get in touch with me for a future installment of BOA Audio listener feedback, that's simple. Just go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button, or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the final method, of course, is to join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It is BOA's Paranormal Playground. Lots of fun going on there, not just talking about the world of the paranormal, but also the world of pop culture and sports. And if you're a part of Facebook or Twitter and you want to hook up via those social networking sites, just punch in Banal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and I should pop up right away. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good. Up next, let's dole out the thanks to the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. The BOA Audio staff has every right to kick my ass because they've been sending me columns over the last few weeks, and I just have not got around to posting them. I've got a slew of columns from just about every writer on the staff waiting to be posted at Banal of America. So if you're listening to this here in mid-July, be sure to check out BOA for a whole bunch of new stuff from the BOA staff. You guys are awesome. Keeping the website afloat, even when I don't have time to update it, I humbly apologize, and I cannot wait to unleash your musings on the BOA readers. We say it all the time, my friends, and it is the truth if you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Been All of America, then you're only getting half of the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the part of the program that I don't really feel entirely comfortable with, but it is habit, so let's just do it, and that is, of course, the call for donations. BOA audio has been sporadic at best this season. A lot of it is the technical issues. A lot of it is also my outside work. But it is continuing onward, and we definitely plan on continuing onward beyond Season 6. So if you want to help us out, help us keep 
the whole operation up and running, keep the, the grease on the wheels, if you will, please make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. You can do that by going to banalofamerica.com and clicking the PayPal button. That's on the left-hand side of the screen. Or you can send us a snail mail donation to Tim Banal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass. 01866. Once again, that's Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass 01866. And if you're going to send us a snail mail donation, please include your email address so I can shoot you a line saying thanks and make your donation payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America because my bank is anal and they will not cash those checks. Of course, I know times are tough out there. People are just scraping by, and who knows what's going to happen with the economy here uh, as we go into the late summer and fall. So don't beat yourself up if you can't make a donation. And if you can, we would really appreciate it. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards Been All of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, and I'm really going to try and make it next week because I'm dying to unleash this episode on the BOA Audio listeners, talking about the episode I teased a few weeks ago, Spontaneous Human Combustion, my friends. Sponcom. We're going to get into this in a huge way. Our guest is Larry Arnold. He has been researching spontaneous human combustion for the last 30 years at least. He is the worldwide authority on Spawncom. He is a human encyclopedia of SHC. We're going to talk about what it is, the origins of this, how far back does Spawncom trace famous cases in the history of spontaneous human combustion, what the critics say, about SHC, how he debunks the debunkers, really just tons and tons of stuff. This is comprehensive, my friends. It really covers spontaneous human combustion from so many different angles. This is a topic I've wanted to cover on the program for years, and to finally get the worldwide authority on spontaneous human combustion on BOA Audio with no time limits and no restrictions was thrilling for me, and I cannot wait to roll it out for all you guys out there. It is definitely going to be an instant classic edition of the program. Larry Arnold talking about spontaneous human combustion next week on BOA Audio. And on that note, let's close the book on this installment of the program. Thanks once again to Peter Robbins for coming back on the program. Check him out on Facebook, folks. Thanks as well to Kirk, Chris, and John for writing in on BOA Audio listener feedback. And finally, of course, big, big thanks to all you great folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners. I've already said it a million times. It's been a crazy season. But I can honestly tell you, over the last few months, I've felt better than I have in quite some time about not just the program, but the future of BOA in major, major areas. We have got some awesome projects in the works, so do not fret, my friends. BOA is poised to head to the next level 
in the not-too-distant future. And we owe that, really, to you guys out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who have supported us through thick and thin, the people who have been with us since Season 1, and the people who picked us up in the last few weeks and have been digging into the archive. You guys are awesome. I would not be doing this without you. I would not be able to do this without you. And your support of this program and this entire enterprise humbles me every time I log on to my computer. You guys are the best. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.